John chapter 12, as we continue our study of what true worship looks like as we worship the one who is the resurrection and the life, I want to uh, begin our time this morning by reading for us verses 12 through 19 as we piggyback really on what we learned last Lord's Day in John chapter 12. The Apostle John writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 12, On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things, and he had done these things to them, or to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb had, and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see, you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's offer our time before the Lord and ask Him to attend to our study. Lord, we do thank You that we can be here this day. Thank You for Your Word, for the truth that is here, for all that You would have for us, and for what we might learn through it. Lord, use it to Your glory and to our good as we think through the wonder of this passage you think about worship and what that looks like in the life of those who love you. So bless our time, honor your name, help us to understand in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may remember last Lord's Day morning we looked at the first 11 verses of John chapter 12 and we were looking intently at the heart of true worship. Really differentiating, really, what true worship looks like in the life of someone who believes what Jesus had said that Mary and Martha were to believe concerning Him in reference to the raising of His brother. Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And I know from that message, many of you were taking notes, and I'm sure you remember what was said concerning the heart of those who are true worshipers of Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. We are, in fact, looking at all of this simply because we are approaching next Lord's Day and resurrection morning, at least on the church calendar. We're looking at true worshipers. True worshipers are not those who seek after self. True worshipers are not those who 
who look out for themselves only and exclusively and the fulfillment of the desires of their own lives primarily. True worshipers are those who exhibit an attitude of selflessness. This is clearly what Jesus Christ calls all of his followers to be and to do. No one can come after me unless he deny himself, unless he die to self. This is the quintessential primary Christian principle. Why? Because that's exactly what Christ is like. Christ came and died to self, and therefore he calls us to be like him. We learn that Martha was selfless in her service to the Lord. Mary was selfless in her sacrifice to the Lord. And Lazarus was selfless in his desire for fellowship with the Lord and with those who were with the Lord. The reality is that none of these things happened in their lives by chance. None of those things were self-induced and therefore self-produced. These were not efforts on their part originating within them. All of their worship was a reflection of their encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ at the resurrection of Lazarus and the realization that he is in fact exactly what he said. He is the resurrection and the life. Last Lord's Day, I made a comment that it concerns me as a pastor and as a Christian in evangelicalism in our day, even as I look intently at areas of my own life sometimes, as I think about my Christian walk in and of itself, that far too often, far too often, we who profess to know Christ, and the majority, I would say, even of professing believers, are living lives that do not reflect a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is words, it is, it is outwork in the sense of an attachment to Christ by way of what we say, but oftentimes not by way of reflection. It's an even ugly fact of our own lives that far too often, if we are honest with ourselves as Christians, we are far too often just hearers of the Word rather than doers of the Word. At times we boast of great things concerning our own Christianity. In fact, we want others to see us with a facade that we have built that says, hey, I'm a really mature Christian, and yet often that is all it is. is. It's just a facade. It's empty boasting. I find this to be true, sadly, even when I go to pastor's conferences around the country and talk to other pastors, it seems like none of them, I was saying this to my wife recently, none of them seem to really want to be real about things. It's always everything is really good wherever they're at in ministry. You talk to them about ministry, and unless they're really trying to be open and honest, it's always, no, things are great. Things are really good. I'm a pastor. I know that's not true. I'm a Christian. I know that's not true in in my own life. Things are not always perfect. We all have sin issues. We all have things we're going through, weaknesses, struggles, trials, difficulties. 
it's not always good. And it is concern for me in evangelicalism today. It concerns me for many reasons, but I'll, I'll just by way of introduction give you a couple. One reason it concerns me is because I wonder how many professing believers are living an actually deceived life. Going through the motions of outward Christianity, or however that's defined today, and yet they don't truly know Christ inwardly. How many people in our day are truly deceived and are in that ill-fated group that many of us know about and read about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, who say, but Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't Didn't we do all this Christian activity in your name? And Jesus says to them, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. You attached yourself to me, you said you knew me, but... I don't know you. What a tragic end it will be for many because the road is narrow, Jesus said, and few there are that find it. That's one reason for concern. But there is another one also. And it is about all the true Christians. The question I have in my mind and my heart when I think about this is why is there such an ebb and flow in the Christian life? Why does there seem to be this up and down so often in the Christian life? Why is it so difficult for professing Christians to be consistently obedient to Christ? I know we could throw out the simple Sunday school answer. Well, pastor, it's because there's sin in the world, because we're sinners. We're not perfect yet. We still sin. That's part of it. I I guess in one sense we could even say, well, that's the ultimate cause of it, right? Every true Christian sins. But but I don't think that goes deep enough. I, I don't think that touches the issue. I think that's too easy of an answer for us in it because that's just another rationalization as to why I don't need to work at salvation. Why I don't need to work at walking in faith. Why I don't need to fight against sin. It's almost the mentality, I know I can't win, so why try? So what am I talking about? I'm talking about what causes that kind of thinking. I mean, if we truly know Christ, then according to the Word of God, according to what the Scriptures tell us, that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. First Peter chapter one and or Second Peter chapter one verse three. We have everything we need for life and godliness. That's God the Father, God the Creator, telling His creation, those who know Him by faith through His Son, Jesus Christ, I've given you everything you need for life and for godliness. In other words, for what you need to physically contain your life here on this earth as I allow through my sovereign providence to allow you to live on this earth until the day I bring you home and for you to be a godly person right now. 
I've given you everything you need. So if he's given me everything I need for life and for godliness, then I must have the equipment to be able to carry it out by God's grace that he's given me that too, so then why don't I? That's the question. In the book of James, we are reminded of some very important truths concerning Christian character. In fact, it's the entire book. James lays out practical tests that each professing Christian can evaluate their own life by and then inventory themselves as to what genuine faith looks like. And he gives 13 practical tests, questions, if you will. Something we can ask ourselves... So how am I doing? How am I doing in this area of my Christianity? How does my life stack up to what God describes as Christian living based upon the reality that God gave me everything I need for life and for godliness? The first thing you come to when you open the book of James is, how do I respond to trials in life? That's the first one. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's the first test. How do I respond to difficulty in life? What happens in my inner man when trials and temptations are allowed by God to take place? What do we do with those? As to put it in the context of what we're going to be really driving into this morning in John, how do I worship in the midst of all of that? What does my worship look like in the midst of all of that? And then James goes on to say, our response to those things is a direct reflection of our understanding of the purpose of trials where we're truly in the midst of trials being exercised by God to strengthen us to be continually victorious through them. God is exercising that in us. The second test is this. How do I respond to God's Word? How do I respond to God's Word? How do I respond to trials? That's what James brings up first. And then he he brings in this whole issue of the Word of God. What do I do with the Word of God? I'll just read it for us. Notice what he says. But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 19 of James chapter 1. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Because if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. 
So if anyone thinks of himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Ah, now we touch a chord. It's the stain of the world, beloved, that so often is allowed in to our lives by which pollutes us. In fact, some of your versions use that word there, polluted. Keep yourselves unpolluted from the world. That doesn't mean that we are to remove ourselves from the world and get some Christian cloister and and group and isolate ourselves from the world. We know that we cannot leave this place. We cannot isolate ourselves enough out of this place. In fact, isolation only highlights the reality that all the sin that's causing problems with us is in us, not outside of us. But we can be unstained from the world We can be unstained from the world in our minds. And that's where the greatest problem lies in our Christianity. In our minds. Far too often we buy into the thinking. We buy into the philosophy of the world. And we become polluted by the world and how the world thinks. And that worldly thinking begins to reflect itself in our living. And so that subtle reality happens and we don't oftentimes even realize it. You say, why are you saying that? Well, here's why I say all this. Because here in the West, we live in a culture that is dominated by a philosophy that having a king is a bad thing. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that here in New England, it is an highly acute problem. Anti-authorityism is all over the globe. It is all over America, and it is acute here in New England, but it is acute in the heart of men. Anti-authority. No king over me. None of us have ever lived in a country, if we've grown up here in America, some of us grew up in other places of the world and have now relocated here, but most of us have grown up here in our own country, where our primary rule came from not a sole monarch, but the throwing off of the vestiges of a monarch. Our country was founded not on the rule of a king, but on the rule of the people, The rule of the people which threw off the oppression of the king of England and the demand for a state-run religion that they wanted in England. They wanted the king to rule over all of that. And that was part of the driving force behind the founding of our country. Our forefathers decided to throw off the monarch. Rule ourselves. Of course, in some ways that was good. some ways that was good. But in many ways, it was bad. Why? Because it has bred and developed in the hearts of many a desire for no king, no authority. There will be no authority over me. 
fact, we even have it. I've kind of tongue-in-cheeked about it many, many years since I've been here on our license plates. We live free or we die. Anytime someone comes along and declares rulership, there's a fight against it. Unless, for the benefit of us, for the benefit of our own desires, our own selfishness, the new rulership will take some other current oppression away, remove something else that is hindering my desires, and the new one will give me a new ease that I've always desired anyway. The irony to all of that is that's not simply a Western problem here for us, because even though we've thrown off the rulership of kings, even though we were started and founded upon that, there are countries it is still alive and well in. They too begin to silently look for a new king anytime the current one is no longer allowed them to do what they want to do. We've kind of made habit here in America. We, we get rid of rulers pretty quickly that we don't like anymore as long as we can saddle enough people on our side to get rid of them. In the West, we have no real concept of kingship over us, and in other places, kingship has been reduced to someone who gives us what we want rather than what we need. And of course, we understand there are abuses to those who hold monarchy in many places. It's been well established in the historical record throughout history. And oftentimes, we wouldn't blame them for wanting someone else. But when it comes to Christianity, we must understand one principle above all other principles, and that is this fact. We have a king. We have a king. And he is not a king that is here to give us what we want. He is a king that always gives us what we need most. And for all mankind, that is a way to live according to the design of our Creator. We have a king that has been given to us who will give us what we need most, and that is equipping us by means of faith in Him, equipping us to accomplish and live out the very way we have been created according to our Maker through salvation, which is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. True worshipers understand who their King is. True worshipers know who their king is. Now, if you're not in John chapter 12, we need to be there because this is where we're going to go. I know that was a long introduction, but I needed to say all of that to set the stage. In light of our understanding of who Christ is and how this is to be reflected in our lives as Christians... When we look at this passage, there are two groups of people being identified here in verses 12 to 19. There are two different crowds of people, two different congregations, if you will, if we can just use that term in a generic fashion to talk about a grouping of people. One group understands who Jesus is. The other does not. 
Both groups are attached to Jesus in some form, but only one group truly knows Jesus. Both outwardly appear to be worshiping Jesus, but only one truly does worship Jesus. All of this is taking place, why? Because Jesus is entering Jerusalem as king. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of this text. In one sense, we could just simply close our Bibles and pray and close in prayer, knowing that Jesus is king, and that ought to rule our minds all the time. Jesus is king. Not me. Not you. Not us. Jesus Christ is king. Like John highlights this very point in verses 14 through 16. Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified i.e. when he ascended to his place of glory that he had left prior to that, just as he prayed in John chapter 17, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. In other words, that the people had hailed him as king. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as a king, For one purpose, so that the Word of God might be fulfilled. So that what God had said would be shown to be exactly true. You say, what part is being fulfilled? Well, the answer to that question cannot be found in this text. The answer to that question goes through the Old Testament where we are reminded of a prophecy concerning the 70 weeks that we find in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. You can turn there with me if you want. Uh, you don't have to. I'm going to just make a few comments about this. Daniel chapter 9, very, very, very important passage of Scripture for all of us in our understanding of what's happening in the end times. Daniel chapter 9, we find a vision, a prophecy. A prophecy given through a vision to Daniel while Israel is in captivity in Babylon. And God says to Daniel that a length of time was, was, to, was going to go by from, from a certain period, from a certain day when Israel's sin would be finished. And then everlasting righteousness would be brought in. And the span of time was 70 weeks. And when you study this out, you'll understand that the weeks are not weeks like we count weeks, seven days, but each of those weeks and each day in those weeks is actually a seven-year period of time. So you have a week, which is seven sevens, or seven periods of seven years, or 49 years, which is what a week would include. 
And the 49 years is to go by in rebuilding Jerusalem. And God gives us a history of that in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, when they came from captivity and rebuilt the city walls in Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem is restored, there is a length of time of 62 sevens. 62 sevens. That was the elapsed time until, as Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 says, the Messiah, the prince, would enter. The prince comes and he will be cut off from the people. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there will be seven weeks of 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. We have a 69-week period, right? 7 plus 62 is 69. 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven years. So a total of 69 weeks needed to pass from the rebuilding of the temple until Christ came and was cut off. Well, that's 483 years if you do the math. 483 years after the decree to rebuild the temple, Christ was to come to Jerusalem as prince and be cut off. Not 483 years from the building of the temple, but from the decree to rebuild the temple. That, beloved, is the key prophecy which is being fulfilled in John chapter 12. That's the key prophecy being fulfilled in John chapter 12. Jesus entering in, as verse 13 says, He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem is this grand scene that God has orchestrated by His own timing and His redemptive plan, and it is the fulfillment of the vision that He had given to Daniel on the 69th week when the Messiah, the Prince, would formally and officially present Himself to Israel as King. This is the Messiah. When a Jew says today, we're still waiting on the Messiah, Just ask him, well, what happened in Daniel chapter 9? When did that happen? Sir Robert Anderson, in his book titled The Coming Prince, said this, quote, No student of the gospel narrative can fail to see that the Lord's last visit to Jerusalem was not only in fact, but in the purpose of it, the crisis of his ministry, the goal toward which it had been directed. He said, after the first tokens had been given that the nation would reject his messianic claims, he had shunned all public recognition of them. But now, the twofold testimony of his words and his works had been fully tendered. His entrance into the holy city was to proclaim his messiahship and to receive his doom. This is why Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. This is why he entered in. This is Palm Sunday. So Daniel 9 is being fulfilled partially, not fully, but partially, and Zechariah chapter 9. 
Daniel 9 tells us of the when this is taking place, the 483 years after the decree. And Zechariah 9 is telling us the how it's taking place. You notice in verse 15 of John 12, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here you have Daniel chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 9 and God declaring the very truth of His Word to the people of Israel about Jesus Christ and the fulfilling of those prophecies in Him. So the king, this one who has declared just a few days before, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this is the one who has come? And the response to him is twofold. Much like we see today. There are those who hail Jesus as the coming one, just as they do here in verse 13. The one who in their minds, would set them free from the current oppression of their governmental overlords, the Romans... They want it out. And there are those who are hailing Him because He is God who came to set them free from sin so that they might glorify Him as God had designed them to. So it's in light of what we learned last day, last Lord's Day, that this difference between true worshipers is highlighted again. Who is truly worshiping and who is not? And this is the difference between those who are attaching themselves to Christ for what He can do and those who are attached to Christ because of what He has done. That's the difference. That's the difference between those who want a king to set them free from the troubles of life and those who serve the king in spite of and within the circumstances of life, because they know that He has set them free from sin because He is the resurrection and the life. The first group is found in verses 12 and 13. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him, began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's interesting to me that in the history of Christianity, that religious Christianity has taken a minute portion of this very text and made it the big grand thing of this very day. We call this Palm Sunday. Why? Because they took palm branches and laid them down on the street before Jesus. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. And yet this really should be called the King's Sunday. This is the King's Day. They had come to the feast not to worship the true king, They had come to the feast out of religious duty. This is the crowds, the great multitude. They had come to the feast to do what they do at the feast, 
when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, so it was the feast that they came, and, and yet there was this other spectacle that they wanted to see as well. They came in order to participate in the celebration of the Passover, like we learned some weeks ago in our study of Luke. Every man 13 years or older had to go three festivals to Jerusalem, Passover being one of them. And for that, they had to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean. So they, they came early. They came in order to go through the ceremonially cleansing process. According to some biblical historians, the crowd would have been close to 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at any Passover time. And when the crowd hears that Jesus is coming into the city, they run out, they grab palm branches, and they begin to lay them down on the ground and cry out, Hosanna! What an amazing pronouncement. Hosanna! Blessings! That's what they're saying. Hosanna! Praise Him! In Hebrew, the word literally means save us! Give salvation now! They were quoting from the book of Psalms. Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm. One they would have sung as they, they entered through the steps of the Temple Mount. They would have sung each morning during the, during the Feast of Tabernacles as they stayed away from their homes. Each Jew would have understood to be a psalm announcing the, the king, the one who would rule them. But, but this, this pronouncement is simply a, a surface pronouncement. It's, it's religious words. They, they, it isn't because they believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Their heart isn't changed because of that. It isn't a, a plea for Christ to save them from their sin. These are words that, that they're saying, please save us from the oppression, save us from our situation, save us from our life circumstances, save us from the difficulty that we have every day. They're waiting for the day when Messiah would come and save them from all of the troubles of life. And for many who were there that day, the day had come. This is the very same reason many flock to God today. This is the very same reason that, at least in the West, churches sometimes are filled, especially on Easter and Christmas, with people who spend no other time with God, no other time thinking about God at all, but at least we should go on Easter and Christmas. And sadly, this is the very gospel that is presented to them. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Why? Because He's going to fix all your problems. Come to, come to Jesus because with Jesus, life's going to get a whole lot better. Oh, just come. Come on. Come to Jesus because life's difficulties will end. Just make a decision for Jesus and everything's going to be okay. All your circumstances are going to start getting better. People flock to that kind of shallow gospel. Because it's your best life now. As one popular 
so-called preacher says. So people flock to that. They read about it in books. They hear it in churches, even though it's another false gospel. Not the one in the Scriptures. Christ never said, come to me, all of you who are having trouble in life, and I'll fix it for you. Christ never said that. Christ said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the words of Christ. And what He means by heavy laden is this. It's not the troubles of life that are heavy laden. It's the sin of your life that's laying you down and you are burdened with trying to get rid of it. You can't. You need rest from trying to work your way into the kingdom of God because it will never work for you. You can never work your way into the kingdom of God. It will never happen that way. The only way is through faith in Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life. We must listen to God's Word clearly. Jesus Christ doesn't desire to fix our problems. Jesus Christ doesn't desire to transform your circumstances. Jesus' desire is to transform your life. To make us spiritually new so that we can respond in such a way that is God-glorifying. So that we can be equipped to deny ourselves, to not love this world and the things of the world. So this first group is superficially attached to Jesus. They're superficially attached. They believe He's going to just rescue them from the trouble of life. Oh, let's go out to see Him. We're coming to this religious ritual. We need to go through that. We know this is part of our effort at righteousness. And Jesus is here. Let's go see Him. Let's, let's add that to our deal. Let's hail Him as King. Maybe that'll be the day that our troubles end. There's another group here. They're genuinely, I believe, attached to Christ. Not because of what he has done for them or what he uh, would do for their circumstances, because, but because of who he is. Because of who he is. Notice verse 17. So the multitude who were with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb. That's not just a oops phrase put in there, that ties us back to John chapter 11. These are the people who are around who are watching Jesus Christ do the very reality that He said, you must believe I am. These are the people who are there. And so they too, along with Martha and Mary, and even Lazarus who walked out of the grave, they have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. They were there when it happened. Our text tells us that they were bearing him witness. That's how it says it in New American Standard in verse 17. They were bearing him witness. That means they were going around and spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. Bearing him witness. That's the same word for witness. Martyrio, it's the same word we get martyr from. 
In fact, they were part of the reason that so many came out to see Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. Notice verse 18, for this cause also the multitude went out to meet him. So it's a different people than the multitude. These are people who were with Jesus at the raising of Lazarus, and they were bearing witness about Jesus, and the multitude, because of them, telling them about Jesus, were going out to meet Jesus because they heard that he had performed this sign. They were witnessing for Christ. They were witnessing about Jesus Christ, even though it was dangerous to do so. In fact, John chapter 11, verse 57 says, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that he should report it, that they might seize him. Nobody was happy in the leadership of Israel that Jesus was around, at least not the majority of the people. But in spite of all the threats, in spite of all the hush-hush about, hey, we need to find Jesus, who knows where Jesus is, the secret clandestine activities that would have been going on through the streets of Jerusalem. These people are out there, they're giving testimony about Jesus, and that's why I say I believe that many of them were true believers. They believed in Jesus Christ. They believed He was the resurrection and life. And I also believe this is what happens in a life when we come to understand that Jesus is, in fact, our King. We understand that Jesus Christ is our King. When we understand who He is in light of, or who we are in light of who He is, the only response that we have As Paul said in Romans 12, our only reasonable service of worship is to go and to tell others about this one who is the resurrection and the life. To go and be a witness for Christ. That is simply to say, beloved, that true worshipers evangelize. True worshipers evangelize. True worshipers live Christ and tell of Christ with their life and with their deeds. Why? Because they know their king. Because they love having a king. Because they want to worship their king. And their desire is that others know their king, no matter what the threat is. It doesn't matter that others think you might be a Jesus fanatic. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to me. You're never going to know the truth, and you'll be offended until the day you enter hell, which really isn't an issue other than a sadness. I, you need to know Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is your king, whether you want him to be or not. It doesn't matter that others might ostracize us and not want us around. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that family doesn't want to hear it. They don't want to have you around. They don't invite you to the things because, man, you're going to talk about Jesus. None of that matters. They're blind. They're deaf. In the kindest sense of the word, they're dumb. They're dumb. 
doesn't matter that you can't answer all the questions that fallen logic might bring up against your arguments for why they must believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. It doesn't matter that they think you're a fool. True worshipers just want to see others come to know the Savior. And so you know what true worshipers do? They go and tell others about the Savior. You know what's interesting about this text? It's God was using them to be effective. God was using them to be effective. Verse 18 says, For this cause also the multitude went out to meet him. What cause? That they were bearing him witness. So that's one effect God was allowing, that many people were hearing from them, and many people at least at a curiosity level were going to see Jesus. And, in fact, because of their testifying about Jesus, the Pharisees sarcastically say, look, you're not doing any good. Look around. The world has gone after him. They're having such an effect, nobody's following us anymore. That's the implication of those words. Nobody's following us. Why? Because these people are telling everybody about Jesus. Is it any wonder they wanted to get rid of him? Ah, beloved, that the world would say of us, that the world would proclaim about us, even with disdain and hardship on their heart, that the world would say about us, look who is hearing of Christ because of them. Look who's hearing of Christ because because the people of that church just cannot be quiet about their king. Look at who's hearing about Jesus Christ. Everybody is hearing about this one who they claim is the resurrection and the life. Look how many are following him. All that they would say that about us. I pray that God help us be unpolluted by the world. So much so that our thinking is no longer shallow thinking like them, that we may truly know the King. We may truly worship the King, the one who is the resurrection and the life. And that through that we, we bow to Him in worship. And we serve Him selflessly. We fellowship with one another selflessly. We sacrifice ourselves selflessly and we witness selflessly. Following verses, just to kind of close it for us now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These are are Gentiles going up to the Passover to worship. These are somehow, someway, proselyte Gentiles, Greeks. They go to Philip, who's from an area to the north in Galilee. They ask him, sir, we we wish to see Jesus. Philip comes, he tells Andrew, and Philip came, and they told Jesus. Jesus says to them, hey, bring him here, I'd love to chat with him. Didn't say that. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Implication, the hour has come for me to sacrifice myself in the way I was sent here to sacrifice myself for the lives of sinners. They want to come see me? Is that what, is that what they're desiring? That? Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's what's going to happen with me. I'm going to die for you. So he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. Are you, are you ready? Are they, are they asking that? They want to come see me because they're ready to die to self or die to everything the world has to offer? They're ready to be like me? Anyone serves me, let him follow me. Ah, man. That's not a suggestion, beloved. That is a command. That is a command. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says, you want to you be with me? You want to hang out with me? You want to be with me? Then you better be willing to die to self. That's what following me means. Die to self. Would you pray with me? Father, I trust enough has been said to honor your name, to reflect your majesty, to show us you who are a king and how we are to live as Christians on this earth. Lord, we, we are preparing our minds for that glorious day of your resurrection, the remembrance of all that you came here to do and all that you accomplished and all of it began, eternity past, accomplished by you that we might be with you forever in eternity future. You are our King. We worship you as our King for you are the resurrection and the life. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved, the name Jesus Christ. Lord, I plead with you on behalf of those who do not know you, that you would save them. Have mercy on their souls as you have had mercy upon each one here who believes in Jesus Christ. Grant us the grace through your mercy as you have equipped us to walk by faith. Forgive us when we choose otherwise. Thank you that in Christ we are righteous. And that you grant us continual mercy and strength that we might pick ourselves up, confess our sins, and walk in righteousness again. All to your glory. All to your praise. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.